From WJFF Radio Catskill, this is Close to Home, the podcast that explores the people, issues, and institutions in the Catskill Mountains, the heart of small-town America. I'm your host, Leif Johansson. Hey, thanks for tuning in. Over the last year of doing this program, a handful of listeners have taken the time to write to me about topics we've discussed here and issues they'd like to hear more about. And to my surprise and delight, there has been a lot of interest in passenger rail in the Catskills. The question is simple. Why can't we take the train into the Catskills? The closest stops to us are Middletown and Port Jervis, which are serviced by the Metro Transit Authority, and Rhinecliffe and Poughkeepsie, which are serviced by Amtrak. If you're thinking about coming up here from the city, none of those options are particularly convenient. There are a few bus routes that do come into the Catskills, which have the plus of being inexpensive, but they also do tend to be a lot slower than driving. So folks with access to a car and an interest in coming up to the Catskills are almost always going to drive their cars up here with very few exceptions. So why isn't there passenger rail service here, even though we have freight trains moving through many of our towns in western Sullivan County on a daily basis? To begin to answer that, we need to go back in time. And I've asked Sullivan County historian John Conway to help us do just that. John says that even though we haven't seen passenger rail servicing this region in many years, it was incredibly difficult to get to this area at all before railroads were built in the middle of the 19th century. You know, there were steamships coming up the Hudson that would deposit people in Ulster County, Mm. and then you could get, uh, you know, some sort of conveyance, whether it be stagecoach or horse and carriage from there. That's that's how the tourism industry in Ulster grew uh, probably 25, 30 years before we have tourism in Sullivan County. It, it was mm-hmm. largely uh, made possible by the steamships on the Hudson. But sure. it, the point is, it was really difficult to get here, and you really had to want to get to Sullivan County. Once the Erie comes up, they begin to realize the importance of moving people. And so they begin to promote the, the region that they serve, the upper Delaware we call it today, as a sportsman's paradise. Mm. And, and we see ads everywhere. You know, take the Erie to access the, the lakes and rivers and streams of the upper Delaware region. And so people begin to come up for that. But coming up to the Catskills along the early Erie Railroad was slow going to say the least. And there were strong business incentives to further develop a rail network that would pass through our region, both for tourists and freight travel. I I think what few people realize is that there were once three railroads that served Sullivan County. So we had three separate uh, operations here. Run by three Uh, separate companies? Yes. But some 25, 30 years before the the New York and Oswego Midland, which became the O&W later, the New York and Erie Railroad, which was Jay Gould's railroad, as far back as the 1830s, explored coming into to Sullivan County. And this and would have been the, one of the earliest railroads in the world, right? 
yeah, certainly, certainly uh, in the in the Northeast. And the original the original thought was uh, obviously that it would would go through Monticello, which was the county seat, arguably the most important community, and for most of its life, it, it's been the largest community population wise. And then when the Erie was eventually surveyed and and laid out and built which brings us to about 1849 by the time it was completed through Sullivan County um it went nowhere near Monticello and in fact uh comes up the western side but because of the presence at that time of the DNH canal which ran along the Delaware River on the New York side and would have viewed the Erie as, as competition for freight. Uh, the Erie was unable to get any right-of-ways along the New York side of the river. And so they were forced, at great expense really, to cross the Delaware uh, just above Port Jervis at Sparrowbush into Pennsylvania and come up the Pennsylvania side to just below Narrowsburg, uh, where they came back into New York. So they come back in in Delaware Bridge and and Narrowsburg, Calicoon, Kashecton, Hankins, Long Eddy are all stops on the Erie. So that's 1849. Because of that, the fact that the Erie had, had spurned Monticello, Monticello businessmen were looking for alternatives. And then along comes the New York and Oswego Midland. So now we're in the years immediately following the Civil War and lots of places are building railroads. And so there's talk of a new railroad that would go through the center of Sullivan County. And once again, Monticello seemed to be in line to, to have a, a stop on that railroad. But as uh, the planning stages of the, of the Midland get farther along, uh, it becomes obvious once again that Monticello will not be included. They're, they're going to locate their station in the middle of nowhere in what becomes known as South Fallsburg, but which really didn't exist much at that point in time. I'm not sure exactly why. Usually the stations were located in places where they were selling the most subscriptions. It was sort of like buying stock. And that prompted some businessmen in Monticello to decide to create their own railroad. So now we're in, we're around 1870, uh, They they combined with some businessmen in Port Jervis to create a 22-mile short line, which connects Monticello and Port Jervis, which, of course, is a major stop on the Erie. That was a really bad decision. And, you know, if they had waited a couple of years, I think that they probably were not convinced that the Midland would ever be a successful railroad, and maybe, maybe even that it would not be built. Because if they had waited to connect to the Midland or later the O&W, they could have had a five mile long railroad from Monticello to South Fallsburg and, and probably that would have been a successful route. But the, the route to Port Jervis was just a very, it was over rugged terrain. It was just not ever financially successful. And so what we see is, is that that railroad goes bankrupt a number of times they have to reorganize. And so that's why we often see it referred to by at least three different names. And, and each one was a different incarnation. So you have the Monticello and Port Jervis, 
Railroad, you have the Port Jervis and Monticello Railroad, you have the New York Port Jervis and Monticello Railroad, oh, and they were all different incarnations. And then, ironically, the O&W, which was the successor to the Midland around 1880, uh, they end up buying the Monticello and Port Jervis and, and makes that part of its line. And so that finally puts Monticello on the O&W route. And that was part of the main line that O&W had? Yeah, but it was a roundabout way of getting to Monticello. So what you would have to do is uh, take the the O&W into Wordsboro, actually into a, a place they created called Valley Junction. And then you would jump on this spur line, which would take you uh, into Monticello. So here's the answer to your to your initial question, Leif. Why is there no passenger travel today? The peak year for passenger travel on the O and W, which is the main that was the main railroad into Sullivan County. And that's the the railroad that opened up Sullivan County as a tourism destination and also, by the way, opened up the dairy industry here, which became huge. But peak year for passenger travel uh was nineteen thirteen. Really? So, that early? Yeah, yeah. From that point on, we see a decline in in passenger travel. So Really, by the 1930s, passenger travel into Monticello d- is discontinued, at least in terms of regular travel. They would occasionally run special lines. And by 53, uh, we have passenger travel on the O&W ends, uh, and freight continues until 57. But the O&W was actually in bankruptcy for about 30 years before the court finally said, you know, you got to pull the plug. Between Erie, O&W, and Midland 100, 150 years ago, what was the main economic impetus for all these lines coming into being? It sounds like it was mostly freight that was the economic driver of all of this. And if that's the case, what was the main freight that, that was coming there? I know you mentioned dairy, but I imagine there was a lot of other stuff as well. Sure. And I, I think with most railroads, um, you know, excluding commuter rail, freight is what pays the bills. Uh, passenger travel is kind of the gravy. So we were uh, shipping out on the Erie. Let's talk about the Erie first. So primarily when the canal came in, the d Canal in 1828, it began operation. Uh, obviously, we were shipping coal from Pennsylvania into um, the New York City area. So the railroad proved to be a much more economical and practical way of shipping pretty much everything because obviously the canal had to shut down in the winter because it was frozen. It presented various other problems and, and that's why the railroad prevailed. So any of the items, be it coal or uh, a little bit later, bluestone, even t- to some extent, uh, lumber was shipped on the railroad on the Erie out of Sullivan County. Okay. Uh, the leather that was tanned here that originally would have been shipped out on the canal uh, was shipped out on the railroad eventually. So in addition to the milk and the, and the milk products, those were some of the other things we were shipping here, uh, shipping out of here. Uh, they're also shipping freight uh, construction supplies in because as we're building, as our hotels are building, particularly uh, in the late 19th, early 20th century, uh, 
the railroad realized the importance of uh, of the growth of resorts, and so they would usually make deals with the with the boarding houses or these small hotels that you, something along the lines of if, if you add another twenty five rooms or you put another wing on, we'll ship in the construction supplies for free or at some deep discount because that was a symbiotic relationship that benefited both the hotel which then had additional rooms to rent right and uh and also the railroad because more people and more baggage would be coming up so and that would have provided a huge amount of business for railroads potentially because we're ta- we're not just talking about a few dozen hotels and resorts we're talking about literally thousands of hotels and resorts well yeah i, I think probably uh, during the the, uh, the what we call the silver age which is between 1890 and 1915, we probably had about 200 uh, actual hotels mm. and literally thousands of farmhouses, working farms that are taking in borders to help make ends meet. So by that 1913 date, that is the peak year, just to give you an idea. So we're talking about m- more than 1.2 million passengers traveling on the O and W. Wow. So why was 1913 the peak for passenger rail travel here, even though our Borscht Belt era tourism didn't peak until decades later? Well, John says there were a couple of things happening. Well, I think uh, initially we we see a huge drop off in the number of people coming here. So the the Silver Age ends by 1915. uh, Our resort industry has fallen on hard times here. And so we see a lot of those hotels that thrive during the Silver Age. They close. A lot mm. of the farms, the farmers begin to struggle there. So we see this land uh, and these facilities being sold pretty cheaply. But obviously, the best was still yet to come for our region. And that massive economic resurgence happened in large part because of rocks. Yes, if you've ever stuck a shovel into the ground in the Catskills, you are probably well aware of how rocky the soil is here. Well, the Grossingers learned that the hard way when they came up here to escape the squalor that so many immigrants were living in in New York City. They scraped together $450 and they buy an old farm here because, as I said, land is being sold cheap now. Uh, And that's how they begin their... They come up to farm. You know, they didn't really have any inkling of being a of being a resort. Uh, they, uh, Selig Grossinger, the patriarch, he was a farmer in Europe, and he figured he'd come up and farm. He, so they buy this old farm, and they realize once they get here that farming is really difficult in in Sullivan County. And that first summer of 1914, they take in nine boarders mostly family members of friends of family and they make $81 and that's a that's a windfall for them they 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 see that as the future 
And that idea of supplementing their lack of income from farming by taking in borders, it worked. The Grossingers helped kickstart a new era of tourism to the Catskills, and their resort became one of the most famous in U.S. history. Which is great, but what happened to the trains? John says there were two big factors at play. First was that the railroad made most of its income from moving freight and developing an entire shipping economy around a handful of goods that were produced in our region was a risky game. The Catskills dairy industry, for example, which we talked about in a previous episode of this program, was the main supplier of milk products to New York City for decades, until pasteurization and refrigeration were developed to keep milk from spoiling for several weeks on end. That meant that milk could travel from further afield to New York City, from much larger farms in the Midwest, where it could be produced far more cheaply than it could in upstate New York. And these vagaries of the economy are what ultimately puts the railroads out of business. You know, they can't compete with the trucking industry because they're, you know, very specific where they originate and where they terminate. There are no detours on a railroad. You can't make a an unscheduled stop somewhere uh, that's not on your line. So trucks had a major advantage in that regard. The other nail in the coffin of passenger rail here was that just when the Borscht Belt era was taking off here, tourists were offered other, more flexible ways to travel up here. As we get into the 20s, we see more and more of them accessing the mountains via bus, or motor vehicle, these liveries, what what they call jitneys, were bringing people up. Uh, the railroad becomes less and less important, and that was true throughout America life. The automobile has come along, and it has changed the way Americans vacation. Families would pile into their automobile and they would drive somewhere. So we see the advent of of motels. We see roadside attractions and theme parks and amusement parks growing up throughout America. Uh, Another culprit in that change is the rise in popularity of the sport of golf. When guests were primarily playing tennis and croquet, which were previously the the most popular sports, uh, they were content to play tennis or croquet on the same court, the same grounds, Day after day, it didn't matter. But golfers are always looking for a new challenge. So they drive from place to place to ah. find the new course. This all conspired to put an end to that kind of vacation. I think because of the fact that Sullivan County was catering primarily to a, a New York City clientele, where the automobile was kind of late in arriving, many New York City families didn't have automobiles. Many of them didn't even drive. Um, So that phenomenon probably was delayed quite a bit here. But but nonetheless, American vacations evolved, and and that put the the tourist, uh, what what was called the destination resort or destination tourism, kind of became passe in America. It just happened later here. But I think that America was driving. So in the 50s, for example, uh, which is when our golden age begins to decline, all over America, you know, the interstate highway system is being built. 
Americans are piling into their automobiles and they're driving. They're staying in motels. Uh, we don't, interestingly, we don't see motels being built in Sullivan County much uh, before about 1960. You know, they're, they're few and far between in Sullivan County, where, where all over America, uh, people are building motels. Uh, people are not building destination resorts. Our big hotels are big enough. They continue through just momentum, I think, to, to expand and to grow well into the 70s even. But the smaller resorts are, are really beginning to uh, fade from our landscape as early as 1958. And it's mm -hmm. all because of the automobile and, and the evolution of, of the American vacation. And beyond all of that, when there was passenger rail service from New York City to the Catskills, it had its own set of issues. For one, you couldn't actually get a train from New York City to the Catskills. You know, it wasn't the most convenient way to travel. You had to Originally, you had to take a ferry from, if you lived in Manhattan, you'd take the ferry across the, the river into Weehawken and get the train there and come up to one of the stops. Obviously, you're, you know, if you're driving, you, you can leave from your front door. Even after they built the, the tunnels, you still had to, to cross the Hudson to get to the train from Manhattan. So it wasn't the most convenient thing. Prices increase. Uh, so the, the automobile and the bus uh, just become so much more practical economically and, and uh, logistically to get, uh, to get here than, than the railroad. So yeah, but I, I would say really Leif, by the time, certainly post-World War II, the impact of the railroad on tourism here is, uh, is really insignificant. They were still running, but uh, even we, we see in the 30s that they're beginning to cut back service. And, you know, we, we're really seeing a rede redefining of, of the rail service into the county by that point in time. It has been almost 70 years since a passenger train last rolled into Sullivan County, but I couldn't help but feel optimistic when I was talking to John that there may be an incentive to resume passenger service again, particularly with the incredible increase in tourism that we've seen in the last few years. For more on that, by the way, check out our previous episode on tourism. After all, though, there is a railway that goes through our county, and several freight trains usually pass through every day. So why not just throw in a few passenger rail cars on there too? Well, John was quick to say that he is not an expert on this, but as it turns out, this has been a question that folks in our community have been asking for a long time. You know, I think modern passenger trains today and certainly in order to be competitive travel at such high speeds compared to the freight trains oh, I see. that there are certain uh areas along that route that are just not uh they, they would have to be drastically changed so i think you're probably talking not millions of dollars of investment but but probably billions and i think that's what has deterred uh, I see. Many, and this this is a proposal that 
you know, it's been talked about many times. I think there are complicating factors though. And I think one, one factor, uh, and I'm, I'm certainly not an expert on the subject, but I think the fact that, that that line is in both New York and Pennsylvania, uh, creates an issue because now neither state wants to appropriate funds or maybe they can't appropriate funds to improve conditions in, in the other state. So then it becomes a, a federal issue. Maybe I'm not sure, but I, I think mm. there are probably a lot of complicating factors because that certainly has been talked about. Yeah. Now, what I thought might be practical is rather than try to, to institute a full service again, is that maybe we just have one station, like maybe it comes up to Narrowsburg and everybody gets off there. But I, I think there are lots of logistical challenges that, that have to be met in order to make that practical, in addition to upgrading the, the trails. So now you have to have a, a means of, for people to, what do they do when they get off in, in Narrowsburg? These points all made sense to me. If we did get a single stop somewhere in the county, how do we get people around from that point? Perhaps there would need to be bus stops near the train station that line up with the train schedule to take people onward to other destinations in our communities. And there's a good chance that large sections of track would need to be relayed if we want passenger trains to travel more than 40 miles an hour. But with all of that said, I wanted to reach out to the folks at Amtrak and the Metro Transit Authority to see what their thoughts are on bringing passenger rail service to the Catskills, and if there have been any discussions in their offices about whether this is a possibility at some point in the future. And the official responses I received from both entities were short and sweet. A Metro Transit Authority spokesperson said, quote, The MTA is delighted to see public demand for rail service. Investments in new routes are guided by the MTA's mission and investment principles, which are defined as providing and upgrading mobility within the MTA's service region. For some background, Sullivan County is outside of the 12-county service region that the MTA spokesperson was referring to. And the response from an Amtrak press representative was simply, I don't have anything to share at this time. But speaking with an anonymous source at the Metro Transit Authority, I learned that while there aren't plans to expand the MTA's service area to include Sullivan County or other counties in the Catskills, Doing that would be something that a county like Sullivan would want to seriously consider before going after, because there is a significant price tag in taxes for counties that are serviced by the MTA. Apparently, there has been a heated debate in Orange County for many years about whether the cost of having a few passenger train stops is worth it for their community, when the actual usage of the Metro North Railroad to and from Orange County is often fairly meager. And as for funding from the Federal Infrastructure Act that was signed into law this past year, well, it doesn't get doled out in lump sums to corporations like the MTA or Amtrak. That money will function more like a grant that needs to be applied for, and the MTA already has its sights on a few major transit infrastructure projects in the heart of New York City. So perhaps the short answer is that it doesn't look like we will be seeing train service to Sullivan County anytime soon. But if it does become a possibility one day, 
there are so many questions that we would need to consider. There are more concrete ones like how would the tax burden of passenger rail impact Sullivan County residents compared with the economic benefits our community would receive from the potential increase in tourism that the train service could provide. And then there are the more ambiguous but equally important questions like how could passenger rail service be implemented in a way that is equitable for our communities? If John's example of a single train station in Narrowsburg became a reality, that could just end up furthering a divide between our communities that are experiencing a tourism boom and the ones that aren't. I would still love to see passenger rail come back to the Catskills one day. But let's say that it would cost a billion dollars to make that a reality. I have no idea if that's an accurate number, but whatever the real number is, there probably isn't a world where it's anywhere in the vicinity of cheap. If a benevolent billionaire came along today and said, here is a billion dollars to help improve the Sullivan Catskills, even I would have to admit that there are probably a number of ways we can make tangible improvements to our health, economy, environment, and even our tourism sector that would probably precede passenger rail. But hey, I'm still holding out for Roberta Byron Lockwood's monorail idea. Thank you so much to John Conway for chatting about the fascinating history of railroads in Sullivan County, and thank you to the representatives from Amtrak and Metro Transit Authority who were probably met with eye rolls from their superiors when they kicked my questions up their chain of command. And of course, most importantly, thank you for listening. I'm Leif Johansson, and this is Close to Home, a podcast from WJFF Radio Catskill. Have a great week.